Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, creating unnatural proteins. Plus how young worm mothers may hold the answer to a wriggly riddle. This is the Nature Podcast for November the 30th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Vandell. There's a species of worm that has an almost celebrity status in biology. That worm is Sanorhabditis elegans, or C. elegans to its friends. C. elegans is the go-to model for understanding basic properties of animals, in part because it's pretty basic itself. But in spite of the reams of research that have been carried out on this tiny worm, there are still some pretty big unanswered questions. Worms with seemingly identical nature and nurture can have markedly different traits. Marcos Perez has been tracking down the cause of this mysterious variation for his PhD. I gave him a call to find out more. C. elegans is actually one of the best understood animals um, on the planet. And there's probably in the order of five to 10,000 people working on C. elegans worldwide. So there's a huge number of papers and a really um, broad knowledge base. And really the idea, I think, with choosing C. elegans as a model organism in the first place was to have a very simple animal to try and have a complete understanding of, of an animal, of an animal's development, of, of how uh, the animal works and, and operates basically on a molecular level. And just how complete is our understanding? What, what kind of things do we already know about C. elegans? We know a tremendous amount about its development. So every single worm develops exactly the same way. So we know the all 959 somatic cells in the body of the adult worm. We know exactly where each cell comes from uh, in the embryo. All of that's been painstakingly mapped out. Even with all this knowledge, there's still some unanswered questions, I suppose, though. So, so what unanswered question were you kind of looking at in this paper? One of the unanswered questions was uh, why individuals are different from one another. So this is a question which has concerned our lab for many years. It's very easy to get vast populations of organisms, of individuals, which are genetically identical. Uh, and they're all raised in the same environment, the same petri dish, in fact. Um, and yet we still see 
variation in how the animals look. Some seem to grow faster than others. Some are larger, some are slower. Some behave a bit differently. Some live longer. Some have more offspring themselves and some fewer. And so the basic question we're really trying to address is, where is this variation coming from? How do you begin to hunt for that variation? Because, as you said, we already know so much about this worm. What are we missing? So what we stumbled on in this case was that actually the age of an individual's mother made quite a difference to how big it was when it was born, to how fast it developed, to to how many offspring it produced in itself. And um, really, in this case, it was a matter of thinking, how can these worms be different? Because actually, there's not very many ways in which they can differ from each other, given that we have genetics and environment so tightly controlled. So how is the age of the mother affecting these uh, characteristics of the offspring? Actually, it's quite surprising because it is known in C. elegans, for instance, that as worms get older, as they age, there's a decline in their, in their offspring quality. That's, that's been known for many years. And that's somewhat more intuitive. But what we found in this paper is actually the opposite, that the, it was the youngest mothers, so the progeny of the youngest mothers, that were actually seemingly worse off in many respects. So the progeny of the youngest mothers, the very first progeny which, which were produced, were shorter um, at hatching, they, they grew slower, uh, they had fewer progeny themselves. What is it about being a younger mother that is influencing all these characteristics of the offspring? Not all of them are explained by this, but many seem to be explained by the fact that younger mothers seem to put less yolk into their eggs. Um, and this kind of makes sense in that the younger mothers are quite a lot smaller than the older mothers at the point where they're producing these first eggs. And so we think that's what's going on. So if having young a bit early in life gives them a disadvantage, gives the young a disadvantage, why have young at that stage of life? So we suspect that one of the advantages of producing substandard progeny early is just that you you produce some progeny early and that this outweighs some of those fitness impairments, although that really remains to be proven. This is just our suspicion at this stage. So does this now explain all the variation that we see in C. elegans? Do we now know where it comes from? It doesn't explain all the variation. It's an additional source of variation, but actually we're still working on what's left of the variation that's not explained by this in the lab. Somewhat mysterious, but it seems like there's, there's still definitely sources. Is this result just interesting because it helps us understand uh, theoretically what underpins this variation? Or is it useful in some way to people who use C. elegans in their experiments? I would say that both are true. Um, for sure, it's important for people who use C. elegans in their experiments because this is an extra experimental variable which needs to be controlled and often won't be. So this is going to be very important, I think, for people working with, with C. elegans and especially phenotypic variation in C. elegans. On a more general sense, I think it's illustrative of the kinds of ways in which ancestral experience can impact on an individual. Is this a pattern that we notice in more complex organisms as well, that uh, for younger mothers it, um, it has a detrimental effect on the offspring? So, in this, this, I mean, this particular study pertains... I would say exclusively to, to C. elegans biology. It's, it's interesting in, as an illustration of the kinds of things which can produce phenotypic variation in an organism. But in, in terms of the mechanism, 
there's not much reason to suspect that this particular mechanism will be in operation in, in higher organisms. That was Marcos Perez, who's at the Center for Genomic Regulation in Barcelona. Read his paper at nature.com forward slash nature. The news chat is still to come, where we'll be learning about two very different treatments, AI-controlled brain implants and traditional Chinese medicine. First, though, Benjamin's here and he's brought some research highlights. Einstein's theory of general relativity is still relevant. That is, according to new papers from two international teams of researchers. The first group dived into data from lasers bounced off of mirrors on the moon, hunting for anomalies in its orbit that would point to irregularities in general relativity's rules. Turns out, none were found. Team number two used superconducting gravimeters to measure the Earth's gravitational pull. Again, the results match the theory, so general relativity can rest easy for now. Gravitate towards the two papers over at Physical Review Letters. Slightly further away than the moon, 12.7 billion light-years to be exact, a team led by researchers at Cornell University USA have spied the beginnings of an intergalactic embrace. Two star-crossed galaxies have been seen merging, jointly forming an object known as ADFS 27, the light from which took billions of years to reach Earth. The celestial consolidation is the first of its kind to be seen and should give us a better idea of how larger galaxies form. Shoot over to the Astrophysical Journal to read more. Next up this week, Benjamin's back, giving us an update on a synthetic biology story we last covered back in 2014. Today, I want to talk about DNA and its four bases, adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine or A, T, C, and G. DNA serves as the instruction manual for all living things, with the exception of some RNA-based viruses, and I'm not sure that today's the day to get into a debate about whether viruses are alive or not. But why only these four bases? After all, there are other similar molecules that exist in nature that could have been used instead. According to Floyd Romsberg from the Scripps Research Institute in California, there are a few schools of thought as to why this is. One is that eons of evolutionary time have led to the best DNA system there can be. After all, billions of years of survival of the fittest can't be wrong, right? There's been a lot of thought a little bit more recently that that's actually not true and that we are actually not the best solution. We're just a solution. Basically, we wandered into uh, a set of molecules that are good enough and it allowed for evolution to happen, and there might have been lots of other solutions, but once you start on a specific pathway, it's virtually impossible to switch to a different pathway. But what if we could switch the pathway manually? Floyd and his colleagues have been looking to do just that for some time now. They've done it by introducing two new DNA bases, called X and Y, that form what is known as an unnatural base pair. X and Y are designed to be chemically rather different to the existing bases. Normally, an A on one side of a DNA molecule binds with a corresponding T using hydrogen bonds. It's the same with C and G. By design, X and Y pair in a different way to the other bases, as Floyd explains. We simply took the hydrogen bonding groups away and left it as a very oily-like molecule with the idea that they would pack with each other in the same way that oil packs with oil when it forms a separate phase away from water. It's like when you mix water and oil, you get two phases, they separate. And so we thought if we go with a very orthogonal force, meaning a force that's very unrelated to the force that nature uses, that might buy us right at the beginning some specificity against 
mispairing with GCA and T because, like I said, water and oil don't mix. Back in 2014, Floyd and his colleagues published a nature paper where they introduced DNA containing unnatural base pairs into E. coli bacteria. These microbes were able to copy and store this DNA as they divided and grew. In a paper published this week, the team have taken this work a step further and added the ability to use the DNA as well. We didn't want to just store the information, we wanted to retrieve it. What we've done now is take simply a system that could store information and show that we can now fully retrieve it in the form of unnatural proteins. Translating this unnatural DNA required the team to also add the machinery to let these E. coli use non-standard amino acids. In this paper, they've added two of these non-standard amino acids into a fluorescent protein. Having a DNA alphabet with six bases rather than four could greatly increase the options available when it comes to protein production. Individual amino acids are encoded by a sequence of three bases known as a codon. Each of these can be A, T, C, or G, which gives a maximum of four times four times four combinations. Although it's a bit more complicated than that, and not all codons are used for different amino acids. Adding X and Y in gives the opportunity for six times six times six combinations. In other words, the potential to code for a lot more amino acids. We now have the ability in principle to encode the synthesis of proteins with many new unnatural amino acids. And so the question then is, well, what are you going to do with that? So there are really sort of two areas of, of things that we're interested in. It's very common to use E. coli simply as a little factory to produce proteins that you're interested in. So you let the bacteria grow, they produce some protein of, of interest, you then bust them open, and you recover the protein of interest to do with it whatever you want. The other thing, what if we got the cell to make novel proteins that it can't normally make, but then don't bust the cell open, don't throw the cell away. Get the cell to use that protein in a novel way. One example that Floyd gave me of using adapted microbes is that they could be introduced to an environment to clean up a specific pollutant. However, this example begs the obvious question about containment. But according to Floyd, X and Y don't exist in nature, and because bacteria can't make them themselves, they're reliant on the bases being supplied by the researchers. You know, synthetic biology is doing a lot these days, and a lot of it is, has the potential to be scary. And I think that it's nice to be able to say that, look, these bugs, these organisms, these semi-synthetic organisms will grow in the lab as long as you're providing them X and Y, but they can't get X and Y anywhere else. If they escape out into the soil in front of the Scripps Research Institute or in front of my home, they're going to simply die. Floyd and his team aren't the only researchers working on non-standard DNA bases, but showing the feasibility of integrating non-standard amino acids into a protein is another step forward towards expanding the genetic code, which has existed unchanged, as far as we're aware, for millions, if not billions, of years. That was a report from Benjamin Thompson. Floyd Romesberg's paper can be found at nature.com forward slash nature, plus there's a news story over at nature.com forward slash news. And speaking of news, it's time now for this week's news chat, and we're joined in the studio by Features Editor Richard Van Norden. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. Now, first up, there is some news on brain implants for mood disorders, but brain implants themselves for mood disorders, that's not an entirely new thing. No, uh, brain implants have been used to treat movement disorders like Parkinson's disease, and uh, they've been a bit less successful when testing against mood disorders like depression. But the new thing that we're reporting on this week is brain implants that work by themselves. 
two teams funded by the research arm of the US military, DARPA, have begun trials of so-called closed-loop brain implants, and they use algorithms to detect patterns associated with mood disorders, and they can shock the brain back to a healthy state without a physician pressing any buttons. So what was actually happening before? Was it a much more manual process? Yeah, uh, essentially delivering electric pulses to alter the activity of your neurons. That's known as deep brain stimulation. Attempts to uh, treat depression. Well, one study with 90 people suggested that after a year of treatment uh, with these implants, there was no improvement. Now, the scientists behind these new projects say their work might succeed because they've designed their implants specifically to treat mental illness and to switch on only when needed. Previously, the implants were essentially on constantly. What are you actually watching for? You you say they're only switching on when needed. How's that evaluated? Well, at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington, D.C., where we heard about this work, an electrical engineer, Omid Sani, at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, showed uh, how they're working out what to do with these implants. Essentially, they're working with people with epilepsy who have electrodes implanted. They're tracking their brain activity, and also they're asking them about their moods in detail over about one to three weeks. And you can compare that information and essentially come up with an algorithm to decode that person's changing moods from their brain activity. So you end up with broad patterns of brain areas associated with moods and an algorithm that can essentially deliver pulses that change that pattern back to what's been associated with a better mood. Um, There's another team also reported at this meeting. They, rather than detecting a mood or, or a mental illness, they want to map brain activity associated with behaviours like distraction um, or difficulties with empathy. So that's even harder to perhaps figure out than, than mood. And again, the idea is to come up with algorithms that automatically simulate the brain when they see these neuronal patterns emerging. It seems like there must be some ethical issues connected with actually putting implants in people's brains and feeding back in this way. First of all, there's the possibility of overcorrecting emotions. You might create extreme happiness that overwhelms all other feelings. And there's a bigger question here. Uh, might people feel an altered sense of identity or or agency? Nature published a comment piece earlier this month from uh, neurotechnologists who are looking at this and other emerging neuro-implant technologies and warning that the loss of agency or identity because some implant is controlling your mood for you um, is a real concern. Uh, They referenced a 2016 study with a man who'd used a brain stimulator to treat his depression for seven years And he reported he began to wonder whether the way he was interacting with others was due to the device or his depression or something deeper about himself. He said, I'm really not sure who I am. And the other concern, perhaps, is that these researchers will, they won't be able to read minds, but in reading these patterns, they will have access to activity that encodes a person's feelings or mood. There's a lot of ethical discussion around what's going to come out of this technology 5, 10, 15 years down the line. Let's move from one controversial treatment to another, which is rather than very high-tech, very modern, it's actually a very traditional type of treatment, and that's a Chinese traditional medicine. Now, I imagine many in our audience have heard of Chinese traditional medicine, but they might not know just how big a source of treatment it is in China. 
Support for Chinese traditional and herbal medicines goes right to the top of China, all the way to the Chinese government. And it's been forcefully promoting these herbal medicines as an alternative to expensive Western drugs. Its ultimate goal is to have all Chinese healthcare institutions provide Chinese traditional medicine by 2020. We're reporting this week on draft plans that would roll back some of the regulations on these traditional medicines. And that has scientists worrying that it could put people at risk because from early next year, these medicines may no longer be required to pass trials of safety and efficacy in humans in China. How big actually is the risk? Is the risk only that people might avoid more effective remedies or are there some potential harms associated with some Chinese traditional medicines? There are, of course, examples of problems with Chinese traditional medicines and one we cite is with aristologic acid, which is a component of a plant often called birthwort. And in September this year, China's Food and Drug Administration recalled some batches of this uh, injectable medicine after about 10 people fill ill with fevers. Uh, and in October, a study was published in Science Translational Medicine linking liver cancer to this aristologic acid. This is still in common use. Uh, the US Food and Drug Administration has warned that it's associated with kidney disease, but people take remedies containing this every day. And the defence given by some Chinese researchers is that, well, these herbal formulas have been used for hundreds and thousands of years, unlike Western drugs, uh, so it's okay. But scientists are concerned that if you roll back um, clinical trials and safety tests in humans, um, given that these uh, recalls, such as the one I quoted, are, are happening um, are safety measures adequate? Another concern is that doctors may be unwilling to criticise misuse of Chinese traditional medicines because they're supported at such a, a, a high level in China. Um, in late October, for instance, an article on a medical news site that called for closer attention to the risks of aristologic acid was removed from WeChat, the social media site. It had been viewed more than 700,000 times. And we're not just reporting on that in this week's Nature. There's actually an editorial discussing this very topic. Yeah. So uh, in our editorial, we say that um, this draft rule is a backward step, um, that only controlled clinical trials can satisfy safety concerns. And there's an interesting parallel with the United States uh, traditional and herbal supplements industry, um, because advocates of tr Chinese traditional medicines often say that this will, well, this will just align the system with the US, where a herbal preparation doesn't need to pass FDA tests before going on sale. Well, we say the US system isn't one to emulate, and there's a few differences between the US and China. In the US, such supplements are listed as a separate category, neither food nor drug, uh, and the FDA can only try and ban them if it proves them to be dangerous, and actually, it's just been playing catch-up ever since. It's only been able to recommend after fatalities that unsafe remedies be removed from the market, and the herbal and supplement business has ballooned in the United States. But in the United States, companies are not supposed to say that herbal remedies cure disease. In China, um, such remedies are often prescribed for specific diseases. So it's not quite parallel. The herbal medicines in China are seen uh, as much more therapeutic than they are than the supplements industry in the United States, although our editorial criticises the lax safety regulations applied to both. 
Now, some doctors say, well, you can't test these remedies in clinical trials because they have to be tailored personally to each patient based on the doctor's intuitive interpretation of what the patient needs, and they're usually used in combination. Well, we're saying that's not convincing. And we're also saying that just because standardised trials are difficult or expensive is not a reason to say they can't be done. Fast and cheap can't be the goal of drug regulation. Thanks for that update, Richard. For more on those two news stories, plus the editorial on traditional Chinese medicine, head on over to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. You can follow the show on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. And don't forget to have a look at our YouTube channel. There's loads of great stuff on there, including a new film about axolotl conservation to go with our podcast section from a couple of weeks back. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.